According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 28. We're in the middle of a section that deals with Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, Moses, when he left Egypt, not uh, fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. So we've handled three of the by faith Moses passages already. There's two more to go. By faith, he kept the Passover, and by faith, they passed through the Red Sea. And this is what we're going to be looking at here today. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask for our Father's blessings upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, that by your grace we can study the truth. That, Father, we have your Holy Spirit indwelling each one of us. The Spirit of truth opens the eyes of our understanding. Father, we thank you that the Word of God is a spiritual endeavor, not an earthly endeavor. We're not here um, in human terms, uh, whereby uh, smarter folks can learn things faster. Father, this is a spiritual endeavor, and it's uh, not about how smart we are to figure these things out. It's about how faithful you are to feed us from your truth. So, Father, we ask for the spiritual eyes to see, the spiritual ears to hear. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so by faith he kept the Passover and the the sprinkling of the blood. Mentioned as two separate things. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. This is, of course, referring back to Exodus chapter 12 and the event, uh, the 10th and final plague that God inflicted upon the Egyptians, the uh, process by which he chose to redeem his people out of bondage in the humbling of Pharaoh, in the judgment upon Egypt for the slavery that they had placed Israel under. We're very familiar with the event. Today we get to look at it again and we get to study the theological significance of this, the role of Jesus Christ as our Passover, the uh, typology, the shadow doctrine that Moses would have understood, and then of course the reality that you and I can appreciate. And what a joy that uh, we have a a message like this on Communion Sunday, whereby we get to uh, celebrate the ritual that God has given for us. Because Passover is what Jesus was observing with his disciples, and then communion is what he turned Passover into when he was teaching them about his finished work on the cross, what he was anticipating to be finished on the night in which he was betrayed. And so this is what we're looking at here today. And maybe it's all new, maybe none of this is new, maybe you've heard this 20 times before. But uh, my prayer is that you'll have a dimension of this that uh, will open your eyes to things you never quite thought of in this way. So by faith he kept. By faith he kept. And we don't get into a lot of exegesis or grammar this hour like we do first hour or Wednesday night, but here I've got to mention one thing. Uh, This is the perfect tense of kept. We've had aorist tenses up till now. 
we've had singular events up till now. So by faith, Moses was hidden. Only happened once. He was only floated down the river once. Uh, by faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, Moses left Egypt. He left Egypt, not fearing the uh, the wrath of the king. And on all of these aorist tenses, we just have a punctiliar action. We have an event. We have a moment. And it's spoken of as being on a faith basis. Here, though, we have the perfect tense. And this uh, is showing us a continuous action. And this is showing us a, a past completed action with present ongoing results. In fact, annual results, because every single year Passover would be observed. Uh, when we get through verse 28 and we get through back to verse 29, as you might expect, uh, we're going to return to the aorist tense of the verb, uh, by faith they passed through the Red Sea. That's just a simple aorist. They did it once. It's, uh, it's a point of time. It's done. They walked through the Red Sea and the Egyptians didn't. <laughs> okay, And as a single event, uh, it happened on that day. They got through. It's over and done with. And here we go. So we're in a passage, as I say, in a passage that has uh, the aorist tense almost everywhere as it relates to these believers living out their faith. This verse, though, very tellingly, changes to the perfect tense. And for the verb uh, to keep or to observe, he kept. Uh, really, it's just a verb of doing, which sometimes is idiomatic, and sometimes it drives some of us crazy. If if you don't like the verb doing, like let's do lunch or let's do, you know, in some cases, doing uh, it can be irritating as an idiom or an expression, but it's the idiom that's used here. The verb poieo means to do. And so they did the Passover. They kept the Passover. And the sprinkling of blood. Two separate issues, and we want to recognize them for what they are as well, or we lose, I think, we lose the most important part of the verse. So by faith, he kept on keeping the Passover. Year after year after year, the perfect tense of kept sets this faith testimony apart from Moses' other faith testimonies. From the very first Passover of Exodus 12, and for every year to the end of his life, basically 40 years, Moses kept this ritual by faith. He would do Passover every single year. And here we go again. And here we go again. Like uh, communion. We got communion. Here we go again. But we observe it. We observe it regularly. We observe it consistently. And we never lose sight of how special this is and what a glory and joy that it is for us to observe what God commands us to uh, keep in our remembrance. Let's uh, look back to Exodus 12 and remind ourselves about this. The very first night, even though our verse stresses more than the first night. What's interesting about the first Passover is that it was the last night of a long string of judgment. Uh, It's the tenth and final plague, that there had been nine previous plagues that uh, had, you would think, I mean, if it was me, I would have given up on plague one and said, okay, you know, but um, Pharaoh kept hardening his heart, and then the Lord would harden his heart even more until finally, even after the ninth plague, he is so insistent on keeping the slaves as slaves, uh, it takes the death of his son. It takes the death of all the firstborn sons of Egypt to, uh, to humble the man and finally to break his arrogance and to break his will. And so we read this in Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. 
And so what had previously not been the first month becomes the first month of the year, the first month of the sacred year, if you understand a difference between the, the liturgical calendar and the legal uh, calendar. In any event, this is now their worship, and it starts with Passover. And uh, formerly it was called uh, Abib, but, and then it's going to get renamed Nisan and uh, in the issues here. All right. It is to be the first month of the year. Speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves. On the tenth, not on the first. And being a lunar calendar, of course, it's going to be dependent upon spotting of the new moon, and there's usually a a day or two wiggle room with respect to when the the new moon would be observed, Um, clouds and whatever else. But they would observe a new moon or... Failing to observe it, they would declare it to be the new moon on the, on the particular day and take it from there as the first of the month. And then on a lunar basis, recognizing the first day of the month, they have to count nine more days to come to the tenth of the month. What's the big deal about the tenth of the month? Well, glad you asked. We have it right here. All right. There is a significance. So on the tenth of this month, They're each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. And this is going to be worship, and this is going to be salvation, and this is going to be a a memorial ritual to the end of their days for the whole history of Israel as a nation. They're going to commemorate Passover as the event that birthed them out of bondage. But it's by household. That's also significant in the role that, uh, that fathers have and husbands have and parents have in teaching the children why these things are significant so that when they leave father and mother and cleave to one another and they form a new household, they have um, the uh, obligation to carry this forward. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of the persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. And this is interesting too. It's unique among all the feasts of Israel in the sense that it was to, it was to be, um, the menu was to be prepared and the portion sizes were to be um, stipulated so that everybody has what they should and nobody has too much, nobody has too little, and there's no leftovers allowed. None allowed, okay? If there's any that happen to be uneaten, they, uh, they get burned. They can't stay till the next morning. And so we ha- what, do we, what do we have as, as a picture of this? We recognize that Passover is a picture of redemption. It's a picture of deliverance. It's a picture of God's perfect provision that is sufficient for everybody. And uh, we have it organized like this. All right. The lamb. Your lamb shall be, or your kid, the same word could be lamb or kid, depending if it's a sheep or a goat. We'll just go with lamb for now. Uh, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You uh, may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Okay? And this pictures a lot of things too. The youthfulness of this lamb in the sense of, of course, our Savior was more than a year old. He was 33 years old, 30 years old, plus three and a half year ministry. Uh, give or take. But the point being youthful, youthful, and unblemished, no spot, no blemish, because it's a picture of a sinless sacrifice. Our Savior was a sinless sacrifice. 
but you can take either a sheep or a goat. That's a good thing. Those of us goats appreciate that. Remember in sheep and goat judgment, the sheep are the Jews, the goats, uh, or well, you got sheep and goats representing Gentiles, but nevertheless, having sheep and goats together is, uh, is a good thing because salvation is available for Jew and Gentile alike. Now, you take this lamb. What day of the week is this? This is the 10th day of the month, okay? Could be any day of the week, but it's the 10th day of the month. And you select the lamb. You pick them out. So that's the one. That's the one we're going to eat in four days. That's the one we're eating on Friday. If you're picking them out on Monday, Friday, okay? Now it's different from year to year because it's a lunar calendar and we never know. But in the year our Savior was crucified, the 10th was a Monday, the 14th was a Friday. All right. So you take this lamb. And what do you do with this lamb for all these days? <laughs> well, it says in verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Now, is it <laughs> I can only imagine what happens, especially if you have small kids in the house, and, and this lamb is now a pet instead of livestock. Is this, this lamb is now in the house with you instead of out there with the rest of the flocks. This lamb has been set apart. It's been selected This one is identified with the household that will be killing it and eating it on Friday. Remember, identification is going to be one of the the primary doctrines connected with animal ritual. When you lay the hand on the the animal's head, it represents the, the assignment of guilt. It represents that substitutionary atonement. So keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Okay? Everybody, every lamb, simultaneously in every Jewish household is going to be killed and is going to be eaten. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood. Now this is where it gets significant. In Hebrews 12 or Hebrews 11, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. Two separately mentioned components that are vital. Because the death of the animal is not sufficient. I mean, it is sufficient, but it doesn't complete the, uh, the, uh, the story. All right. So they should take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the house and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. So the left post, the right post, and the lintel across the top. And... Uh, that's what the Lord's going to be looking at. Not the sacrifice, the applied blood. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. In fact, there's going to be a whole seven-day festival of, of unleavened bread that follows Passover. Uh, but as they're eating the flesh of this lamb uh, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Today we use horseradish for... <laughs> which I like. All right. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire. There's significance. Fire is judgment, and he is accepting judgment on our behalf. Roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails, and you shall not leave any of it over until morning. Whatever is left of it, which there shouldn't be any if everybody ate accordingly, uh, whatever is left of it, 
until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner. This is an unusual meal. It says, with your loins girded and sandals on your feet and with your staff in your hand. In other words, it's like a to-go meal. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, you're, because you're in a hurry. You're, you're portraying the urgency. So when they ask, is this for here or is this to go? And you say, both. I'm going to eat it here, but I'm going to eat it like it's to go in a hurry. All right. So, loins girded, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. All right. So this is the one event in a year when mom couldn't tell their kid to slow down, chew your food, because you're obeying God if you just wolf it down, just scarf it down. You're portraying the haste with which God delivered his children out of Egypt. Verse 12 then says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. We've been studying firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And the significance of firstborn in the animal sacrificial system, in the laws of inheritance, the firstborn is entitled a double portion. The first one was the firstborn was to be redeemed. Firstborn is a significant theological concept. It's one that I got, I mean, I'm a firstborn son. I got my attention very early. I was saved at the age of four, almost five. In um, yeah September, so I would turn five just three months later, four months later, and um, as a five-year-old, maybe a six-year-old, didn't didn't take long, and I started to spot all those firstborn references in the Bible, and then then I thought, hey, that's kind of neat because clearly there's an importance there, right? Any event. <coughs> well, then you read about this chapter and you say, ooh, the firstborn's going to die. That's not cool, <laughs> okay? Maybe secondborn is not so bad after all. Then you get to become the new firstborn when the... All right. There's a doctrine here, though. I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The father who is willing to sacrifice the son of his love. And this is going to get illustrated with every Egyptian firstborn dying on this night. Both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, I am the Lord. Scripture talks about the opening of the womb and the firstborn male that opens the womb. You think, well, doesn't a female open the womb? Not theologically, not as the firstborn male. All right. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, I am the Lord. Most of those plagues actually focused on the Egyptian pantheon. The, uh, from the river to the, to the frogs to the, the, uh, all nine of those plagues. All right. But then verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you. Signs and wonders. The signs are designed to communicate doctrine. The signs are intended to communicate a truth. And they're going to learn. The sign is an indicator that they are obedient to the Lord. It's like when Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac and God said, now I know because I have seen. When he sees the blood, he will know because he has seen that his children have obeyed his commands, that they have followed the procedure, that they have killed the lamb, that they have applied the blood. So the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, 
I will pass over you. That's why it's called Passover. The angel of death was ready to kill, but he sees the blood and so he passes over without applying the wrath. When he sees the blood. You notice, not when he sees the dead animal, not when the animal dies, not even when the animal was eaten, but when the blood was applied in the manner that God prescribed for the blood to be applied. That's the basis for which he will pass over and not execute judgment. And so no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And this is how it plays out. Now, as far as the rest of this um, chapter goes, uh, in the next section, Exodus 12, 14 and following, is when he says, we've got to do this every single year. This day will be a memorial to you. So every year, when the first of the, of the year comes around, in the month of Nisan, on the 10th of Nisan, you're going to set apart a lamb, you're going to do the whole process every year. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. They're going to do it even in the millennium. They're going to do it beyond the millennium. For a thousand generations, they will observe Passover. It will be a part of the Jewish nation's heritage before the Lord. And then with that comes the seven days of unleavened bread. Get through these verses. And uh, Moses gives them the instructions in verse 21. Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. He's giving them the instructions and they're going to follow it. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. None of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. So these are the instructions. You want to be identified with that house where the blood is uh, is, is signifying the, uh, the, the obedience. You want to be identified with that house. You've got to be inside that house. <coughs> All right, so, and again, we're going to do this every year. We're going to teach our children this. And um, even when you get into the land, we're going to keep doing this. In verse 26, when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? Then you shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. So they're going to start on this night and they're going to continue every year for their history. Now they're going to miss some. (laughs) In fact, they're going to become idol idol worshipers and they're not going to give the land their Sabbath and they're going to violate. In fact, they're going to lose the law for a period of time and they're going to get carried away into captivity. But as it's designed, this is a permanent ordinance for the Jewish nation and one that they will observe like I say, for the millennium and beyond. So, verse 28 says, The sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of cattle. Every firstborn, a Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. There was no home uh, where there was not someone dead. And this is the night that he calls for Moses and Aaron and says, get out of here, rise up, get out from among my people. And so this is the event that saves the Jewish people. 
Now, the sprinkling of blood is referenced separately. And understand, its significance is critical. It's critical in Passover. It's critical for Mosaic Covenant. It's critical for New Covenant. It's critical for you and me and our salvation. Passing over is the shadow consequence, but removal is the substance consequence. I should have made that two separate points. Apologize for that. Pretend it's two separate points. But the sprinkling of blood is referenced separately, and its significance is critical. In verse 13 again, what does it say? When I see the blood, not when I see you killed the animal, not when I see you ate it with bitter herbs or you had your loins gored or any other process. It's the application of the blood to the doorpost, to the lintel. It identifies the household of blessing under which those that are identifying in obedience will be rescued or saved, if you will. When I see the blood, that's key. Because I think this gets blended, this gets confused. We talk about, and this sparks arguments, right? Calvinists and Arminians, people have been arguing about this for hundreds of years, thousands of years, arguing about the atonement. And when they argue about the atonement, limited, unlimited, when they argue about the atonement, they're missing the point. That the death is one step, but the application of the blood is what he observes to pass over. When I see the blood... And so we could have both limited and unlimited in the sense that Christ died for everybody, but the blood's only applied when the unbeliever believes the promise, when you believe for eternal life. And so all of these theological debates that have been going on um, should pay more attention to when I see the blood and, and show the distinction between the, the blood shed and the blood applied the blood shed and the blood applied. Because remember, the blood was shed on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. It was, it was shed at the same time for everybody. But it was applied at different times for each one of us, right? For me, it was September of 1973. For you, it was whenever you believed in Christ for eternal life. Then the blood was applied in your personal instance. By the way, for the nation of Israel, corporately as a nation, the blood is not yet applied. As a nation, we're going to celebrate this with communion today. Jesus told his disciples, behold the blood of the covenant. The blood was shed, but it has not yet been applied to the nation of Israel. It can't be applied to the nation of Israel until the second advent of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that in our communion service. So it is significant. It is significant. All right. Ah, okay. I thought I had missed something. It's coming up still. Now, passing over is the shadow consequence. In the Old Testament, they dealt with shadows. Passover is a shadow doctrine. The ritual is an animal ritual. Animal rituals are shadows designed to teach and point forward to a substance. The shadows, the law is a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. The shadow is the Passover, the substance is Jesus uh, on the cross. Shadow consequences don't take away sins. The shadow ritual 
can never take away sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. At best, what the animal can do is cover so that God passes over. Big difference. And so you'll notice when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It doesn't say taking the sin away. He's simply passing over. But in John chapter 1, when Jesus comes to the river Jordan and he's announced by John the baptizer, what does he say? In John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is not an animal ritual. This is not a shadow any longer. Jesus is the substance. And so the shadow consequences is passing over. The substance consequence is the removal of sin. The removal of sin. And so the fulfillment of everything that any Passover lamb ever pictured is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And the work that he does on the cross is what takes away our sin. It's nailed to the cross. It's judged. It's done. Romans chapter 3. Paul will theologically present this in Romans 3 in the doctrine of justification. You're probably familiar with it. We've studied it before. But notice the uh, emphasis that Paul's making here. Especially in connection with especially in connection with um, the, the previous sins, the believers from prior dispensations. So in Romans 3.23, of course, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This is ours. This is how we get saved. This is our redemption. Israel's national redemption was something different. This is our personal redemption. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. The public display of this was vital. His death, his resurrection, the display to angels and humans alike is vital. Why is he displaying this? To demonstrate his righteousness, to demonstrate his fairness, to demonstrate that everything Israel did for all those years was also right and fair by just looking forward as a shadow, not the substance. So God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. See, our Father's a demonstrator. Our Father's a teacher. Our Father loves to show what He's doing because He's impressed with what He's doing. And He wants His Son to be impressed with what He's doing. And He wants his, all of His sons to be impressed with what He's doing and to, uh, to learn the lessons we're supposed to learn from this. A demonstration. To demonstrate His righteousness. So we have propitiation and the satisfaction of righteousness. It's right here in this verse. To show that God is right in all that He does. And he does everything the right way in all that he does, with the right timing in all that he does. To demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. 
You see that there in verse 25? I'm reading from Romans 3.25. This is what ties it together. This is what takes Passover, the previous Passover now, to the present removal of sins in Christ. Because the Father is satisfied. And the Father made a display. And so in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. God looking forward to what the Lamb of God would do. Looking forward to the faithfulness of His Son. But recognize for all the humans that lived up till that point of time, what we call Old Testament believers, for Old Testament believers who lived prior to the cross, were their sins taken away yet? No. They were simply passed over. They were covered. In fact, the whole doctrine of atonement, the Hebrew kafar, speaks of covering. So their sins are covered. They're not taken into account. They're not held accountable, but they're covered. They're passed over because in the forbearance of God, he had a plan by which they would be removed. And so David, Moses, Daniel, all the Old Testament saints, Enoch, uh, you know, all the Old Testament saints, they believed, it was reckoned to them as righteousness, they receive eternal life, but they don't die and go to heaven. Where do they go? They die and they descend to Sheol. And there's a compartment there of comfort called Abraham's bosom. And there they are comforted, there they are resting, there they are waiting. They can't go to heaven yet because their sin is not yet removed. The sin is simply covered. (coughs) Remember the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man died, he went to torments. Lazarus died, he went to Abraham's bosom. (coughs) Jesus told the thief on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise was still in Abraham's bosom, was still in the depths of the earth, was still in Sheol, as the Hebrews modeled their, their uh, afterlife. Okay? Not until the resurrection of Jesus. <coughs> Somebody asked me this morning, are you holding up in the cedar yet? I said, I'm doing great. <coughs> All right. <coughs> Not until the resurrection of Jesus. It says, he led captivity captive. Only when Jesus was resurrected could he then empty out the believing compartment of Sheol. He left the unbelievers down there. But he empties out Abraham's bosom. In fact, paradise itself gets caught up to heaven. Paradise gets moved. The whole realm, the whole realm relocates. Because when Paul was caught up to to paradise, he was caught up to the third heaven. All right, so that's how we know that paradise itself got relocated. Today, when someone dies, it's absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Today, when someone dies, they don't go to Abraham's bosom. They don't go to Sheol. That little compartment that used to be across the gulf from uh, the place of torments, it's not there anymore. It's now with the Lord in heaven. Because sin is removed in Christ. And in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Romans 3.26 says, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So everything that was done in the past was looking forward to the present and then ultimately looking beyond the present to eternity future. But that's a different verse. 
demonstration of the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, if he is not just, how can he be the justifier? And he has to be displayed as just. He has to be undeniably testified to as just. All he has ever done, all that he ever will do, is always just. Which is why even at the great white throne, when he casts unbelievers into the lake of fire for all eternity, there's no injustice with God. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because of the perfect justice of God. That they are going to experience the second death in the lake of fire and that is perfect justice. Every tongue will confess that as he casts them out. Because he is just and the justifier. If he's not just, he can't be the justifier. That's why we have unleavened bread before the cup. He has to be just to be the justifier. Sinless to be the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. The sinless Lamb of God. So the sprinkling of blood, it is referenced separately. It is a separate issue. And the shadows give way to the consequences. Shadows give way to consequences. Thirdly, let's understand this. Jesus Christ is our Passover. In the body of Christ, we do not take Passover. Occasionally, we'll do a Passover demonstration. We'll do a Seder meal demonstration. It's kind of a cultural thing for us to learn from the Jewish practices. It's a cultural aspect for us, but it's not commanded. The New Testament never commands the church to observe Passover. We don't track the month of Nisan, whether it's March or April or wherever it falls in any particular calendar year. We don't observe the 10th of the month and pick out a lamb. We don't observe the 14th of the month and kill a lamb. In the body of Christ, we, we go past Passover and our ritual is communion. Jesus gave his disciples communion. When he was finished with Passover, he then taught them communion. And communion is what we observe and we're going to observe it today. In fact, we're going to observe it here in just a few minutes. Because Jesus Christ is our Passover. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 5, 7? 1 Corinthians 5, 7. <clears throat> Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. <laughs> I love that. The, uh, the Jews had to clean leaven out of their house before they could take part in uh, Passover. Um, but we get to be a new lump. I love that. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. This is talking about confessing your sins, staying in fellowship, being in fellowship. If you're out of fellowship, confess your sins, clean out that old leaven and be a new lump. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. We have the reality we have the once and for all death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so all day, every day, what can we do? We can confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is he faithful and just? Because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. He is our Passover. So in our worship, we get to be unleavened. Christ is our Passover. Notice, he was identified on Nisan 10. He was killed on Nisan 14 of 33 AD. 
track it through and you follow the triumphal entry in Jerusalem. He came in humble, riding on a colt. And uh, the children were singing Hosanna and the palm branches were being laid down, what the Roman church called Palm Sunday in later traditions. Uh, It was technically a Monday, all right? But be that as it may. All right. Palm Monday was Nisan 10 when the Passover lamb was identified, when he was selected, when those with faith were singing Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? It's Aramaic. It means do save. Do save. It's like do Lord. Do save. Hosanna. They're picking out the Passover lamb on Nisan 10. And then four days later on Nisan 14, the Passover lamb was slain. We have the uh, the great typology of this. The um, let's look at some of these chapters here in the Gospel of John. John chapter twelve. John chapter twelve. You know, I'm going to come back to this. I want to hit this last and then lead into communion with this. So let's, uh, let's get the last point next and then let's back up to this one. Can I do that? Can I go out of order? Of course I can. <laughs> it's my pulpit, my church. All right. Here we go. I'm going to come back to that third point. This critical distinction between the death of the lamb and the application of the blood... We have studied it earlier. If you were with us back in Hebrews chapter 9, you're going to remember this. We studied this principle earlier in connection with the establishment of Mosaic law and the blood of Jesus Christ as the blood of the new covenant. All right? Back in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 18 through 22, and parallel with Moses in Exodus 24, and parallel with our communion here today. What a joy perfect Sunday to be teaching this. Hebrews 9, 18 through 22. um, In Hebrews 9, we're talking about the new covenant, the new covenant that God will make with Israel in the millennium. He's not making it today, and it's not with the church in any event. It's with Israel, and it's in the millennium. But for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Remember this? Hebrews 9.15, since a death has taken place, so he's the mediator, and uh, it requires blood. And uh, in verse uh, 18, therefore even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. When Moses gave them the law, he didn't just walk down the mountain with a couple of stone tablets. They had to sacrifice. Animals had to die. Blood had to be shed and blood had to be applied. It had to be sprinkled. Not on the doorpost and the lintel, on the people. All right? On the book of the law and on the people. So, even Mosaic law was inaugurated with blood. Hebrews 9.19 says, When every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people... According to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats 
with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Do we understand this significance? The author author of Hebrews is pounding it home and I'm pounding it home. Simply dying was not sufficient. It was necessary, but the blood had to be sprinkled. Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, but his blood has not yet been applied to the Jewish nation. Israel will be brought under the covenant at the second advent when he conquers an Armageddon and when, he, when his enemies are made a footstool. Only then will the blood be applied. And so uh, sprinkled both the book and the people. In verse 20, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. That's a communion passage. Those were his words on the night in which he was betrayed. But those were the words of Moses when he put them under Mosaic law. And they're going to be the words of Jesus again at second advent. In the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may also say all things are cleansed with the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So a sacrifice is necessary. But then following the sacrifice, the blood must be applied. Until it's applied, the value of that sacrifice is not experienced. It's not realized. It's not made effective. You remember this? Exodus 24, verses 5 through 8. Exodus 24, verses 5 through 8. So Moses uh, came and recounted to all the words of the Lord, all the ordinances, and the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay, that's a lie, but they, maybe they meant it when they said it. Now Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's the written law and the people are assembled. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Notice it's the young men doing this. And Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So what's he doing that for? Why is he setting half of the blood aside in those basins and then he's sprinkling the altar? All right? Think about what Jesus did when he died on the cross and when he ascended to the Father's right hand. He cleansed the altar in heaven. But there still remains the blood that's set off to the side that has yet to be sprinkled on the Jewish people, which we read about here. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, Israel's not yet to this point. It takes tribulation to bring them to this point. Until Antichrist persecutes them and nearly exterminates them, the Jewish people will not be humbled so as to look upon the Messiah whom they pierced. But they will. They will look upon the Christ whom they crucified, and they will call upon him to be saved. Then they will be sprinkled. 
So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Only then is the blood sprinkled on the Jewish people. Only then do they become a party to the, in this case, it's the Mosaic covenant in the new covenant. In the millennium, it'll be the new covenant. So are we clear with that distinction? The blood has been shed, but the blood has not been sprinkled. We're going to commemorate that in communion because we're in between. We're the bride in between. The blood has been shed, but the blood has not yet been sprinkled, not on Israel. And so we're the covenant people now in between while God is preparing to resume his plan with the covenant nation of Israel. So we partake of communion. We eat the bread. We drink the cup. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, at which point then his blood is sprinkled on the nation of Israel and they can enter into their new covenant. They can enter into the millennial kingdom. Okay, now, now we can back up to this third point here. All right, this John chapter 12, John chapter 18, John chapter 19. I feel like I'm reading a lot to you this morning. I guess some, some go that way. All right. Jesus Christ on Palm Monday enters into Jerusalem. How do we know this? Well, in John 12, 1, we got a little time clue here. It says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So six days before um, the Sabbath, six days before Passover, he comes to Bethany and uh, the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and uh, wiping his feet, all the stuff's happening here. We get down to uh, verse 12, on the next day, on the next day, so this makes it Monday, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna. They're shouting Hosanna. This is the 10th of Nisan. This is the day when they're selecting their Passover lambs that will be killed on Friday and eaten. This also, by the way, concludes the calendar from Daniel chapter 9 when he said 77s have been decreed from the issuing of a decree. 69 of those sevens ended on that Sunday that Jesus spent in Bethany. Palm Monday is the first day after the 69th seven. So to the day, Daniel 9 pinpointed this event. Monday, March 30th of 33 AD. Or Nisan 10, if you want to use that calendar. And so uh, we spot it, it's on the next day in verse 12. And they took branches, the palm trees went out to meet him, began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They're citing Psalm 118. In fact, he can't come for second advent until Israel is humbled to cite this again. And so Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. And uh, Zechariah 9 gets fulfilled here. Uh, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. It's just so undeniable. And I've got Jewish friends and they, they deny it. They can't see it. And you say, wow, you know, 
Zechariah 9, a donkey. How about um, Psalm 118, Hosanna and the palm branches? How about uh, Isaiah 7, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son? How about, uh, I mean, Isaiah 53, the, the spotless lamb led to slaughter? We have all of these Old Testament messianic prophecies all fulfilled. If, 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 you, if you're telling me that Jesus of Nazareth is not the fulfillment of all that, then nobody is. Nobody is. And the calendar, especially the calendar of Daniel chapter 9, that's over and done with. And they admitted that. In the first and second century, the Jewish rabbis admitted that the Daniel 9 calendar is done. But they wouldn't bring themselves to say, Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled it. <laughs> they said, it's done. We don't know what it means. And we're moving Daniel out of the prophets and moving him over to the writings. Daniel was removed from the uh, Nevi'im, from the prophets, and moved over to the Kithuvim part of their Bibles, and then ignored. Daniel's not read today. Daniel 9 is not taught today. Not by the Jew- uh, Jewish synagogues. All right. So here's prophecy being fulfilled. We get over to chapter 18. And um, verse 28. They led Jesus, uh, of course this is the, by now it's morning. Peter's denied the Lord and now the rooster's crowed. And now that it's morning, after his illegal nighttime trials, they uh, took him to the Romans. They led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. It's now Friday, Nisan 14. And these holy religious leaders who are bent on committing murder, they want to stay ceremonially clean so that they can take Passover with their children, with their wives and children. (laughs) How hypocritical is that? It's Passover. So Pilate has to go out to them because they won't cross the boundary into the praetorium. And uh, now he gets, uh, so he's he's had, uh, how many trials has he had already? Two before the sun came up, both illegal. Now he has this one. He's going to have another trial at uh, with Herod and then he's going to come back to Pilate again. He's got a total of five or six different trials depending on how you read that. But it's Passover. Christ, our Passover. In chapter 19, um, down to verses 14 through 18, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. In other words, about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And he cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. What blasphemy. What rejection. So he handed them over, handed him over to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Carried his own cross. Remember when Isaac carried his own wood? Abraham took him up the mountain. Isaac carried the wood. Here's Jesus carrying his own cross. Place of a skull. The Latin is better than the Aramaic. Because the Latin, if, you have, if you're reading your Vulgate, you can read Calvarius. 
in Calvary is our word for place of a skull. It's, it's, it sounds better in the hymns than Golgotha. <laughs> okay? Anyway. And there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Three men on a mountain, but only one man was dying for me. Right? So Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. This was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, King of the Jews. And that bothered many. They read this inscription and for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests, now they're going to argue about it. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. You know, even the unbelievers giving testimony to the glory of God. What I have written, I have written. And if you think about it, that glorious statement of it is written, Jesus quoted it three times in every temptation. He said, it is written. You and I, when we're going through testing, we just stop and we say, it is written. Scripture says, I'm living it out. This is my application because it is written. It is written. All right. So Jesus Christ, our Passover. So the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments You know what? I'm going to save this. Let's, let's read this during our communion service. Because Christ our Passover has been crucified. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for Moses. The example of Hebrews 11 that Moses by faith kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. Father, we thank you for the typology, the shadows. And they point forward to the fulfillment in Christ. Might we appreciate this all the more. Might we never get bored Never ho-hum with here's communion, here we go again. Each time is a fresh reminder that he was the spotless lamb. We're the sinners, but he took our place. We thank you, we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, amen.